With rapid changes in food science, farming technology, and government regulation, your work as a food safety leader is more important than ever. Advance your career with a Master of Science in Food Safety from Michigan State University. This program is taught completely online and is designed for you, the working professional. Michigan State University, preparing students to tackle the challenges of today and tomorrow. Visit foodsafety.msu.edu and then click on the Master's Program link to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and it's just me today. The rest of the team is enjoying some very well-deserved time off. So lucky me, I get the pleasure of wishing you all a very happy new year, and thanks for starting it off with us. For today's interview, you'll hear Adrian's discussion with Dr. Jovana Kovacevic, Associate Professor and Food Safety Extension Specialist at Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, as well as the USDA-funded Western Regional Center to Enhance Food Safety. Dr. Kovacevic speaks about some very important listeria interventions and research that her lab is working on in the realms of sanitation, food processing, and produce, all extremely important topics for food safety. But before we get to that interview, I have one quick housekeeping note. The 2023 Food Safety Summit Digital Brochure is out with detailed information on the outstanding program that we've lined up for our 25th anniversary event being held May 8th through the 11th in Rosemont, Illinois. Now we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can get to that easily. You can also visit the Food Safety Summit website at foodsafetysummit.com and access it there. Early bird registration discounts are available until March 31st, so check out our great program and register now and save. Now, you know, I also like to remind you to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. And to take a deeper dive into all the great content we offer, visit our website, say it with me, food-safety.com. Now it's time for Adrian's interview with Dr. Jovana Kovacevic. Associate Professor and Food Safety Extension Specialist at Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center in Portland. In her current role, Dr. Kovacevic directs the food safety program at the Food Innovation Center and the USDA-funded Western Regional Center to Enhance Food Safety. Her research uses molecular methods and whole genome sequencing to trace, better understand, and prevent contamination events in the food chain, with particular focus on Listeria monocytogenes. Through her work with the Western Regional Center, she supports the Western U.S. Region in Food Safety Modernization Act-related food safety training, education, and outreach activities. Prior to joining OSU, Dr. Kovacevic worked as a lecturer at the University of British Columbia, a food safety consultant with the British Columbia Ministry of Health, and a food safety scientist at the British Columbia Center for Disease Control in Canada. And after a quick break, you'll hear that interview. Michigan State University is leading the way in food-related education and research. This Big Ten institution offers an MS in food safety degree, taught 100% online. 
With curriculum grounded in the sciences, this degree program will help you develop critical thinking skills, increase your understanding of the science of food safety, food law, and advance your leadership skills to prepare you for any food safety challenges. Visit foodsafety.msu.edu and then click on the master's program link to learn more. Well, I am here today with Dr. Jovana Kovacevic, an associate professor at the Food Innovation Center at Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences, and also the director of the Western Regional Center to Enhance Food Safety. So Jovana, really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today, and um, obviously we want to talk about your work at Oregon State, and we're also going to be talking quite a bit about listeria, um, which is kind of a hot topic at the moment with the CDC currently investigating two listeria outbreaks. Um, so we we know that's top of mind for a lot of folks in food safety. Now, as I said, you work in the food safety program at Oregon State's Food Innovation Center. Now. Tell us um, what kind of work and outreach is this program involved with and, you know, what is your role in this work? Well, the Food Innovation Center is one of the Oregon State's uh, University Agricultural Experiment Stations, and we're located in downtown Portland, Oregon, which is a little bit different from most uh, agricultural experiment stations. And this was kind of done to connect us to that urban uh, food industry scene. So the center uh, serves as a resource for a lot of food industry. Um, we do client-based product and process uh, development work, packaging, engineering, and shelf life studies, and a lot of work on consumer sensory testing. Um, and then the last sort of prong that was um, added when I joined or really started developing when I joined uh, was focused on food safety. And I joined the center and OSU in 2016. And that's when we really started developing and growing this program and really building the food safety aspect to complement all the other programs that the center was already uh, really built on and really um, effectively uh, built on. So the one of the drivers for growing this food safety program was the passing of the Food Safety Modernization Act or FSMA, as you know. And um, in my role, uh, when I came in, I was uh, I joined as assistant professor and extension specialist, really focusing on food safety and food microbiology, because that's my background. Um, through this work, we um, grew a lot of the outreach through workshops, uh, developing new workshops, uh, specifically around uh, FESMA and preventive controls. Um, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about some of the aspects of it, where Listeria fits in in my mental monitoring program. But a lot of it has been growing the outreach aspect to be the most uh, impactful for the industry. And then also the other aspect of my work is research. So research into food safety. A lot of it is driven by the needs of food industry. So the uh, um, applied aspect of the research, but then some of it also goes into more basic questions that we have. Uh, to better understand uh, foodborne microorganisms. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you really expanded the uh, the scope and the work of the Food Innovation Center. So definitely a lot of valuable um, work and input there that you're doing. 
So I know that one of the your focuses as a researcher is developing programs to prevent the spread of Listeria monocytogenes and the foodborne illness associated with this pathogen. So how do you work with industry to help achieve this goal? Well, as you mentioned, right, Listeria has been one of those uh, uh, microorganisms in the media a lot in the last uh, probably decade. And it's been one of those microorganisms affecting so many commodities and a really wide range of food industries. And so to be most impactful, we um, have worked on developing, as I mentioned, these workshops for the industry to reach as many people as possible. Um, I am I am the only uh, professor at Food Innovation Center focused on food safety. Uh, so you know, just making sure that I can work it with um, as many people that need help. And one way to do that, do that is through outreach. So a lot of different presentations uh, at different conferences and offering these workshops. Um, and we worked uh, on developing some of the uh, some of the work that has been really needed in the last few years um, is on environmental monitoring programs, a lot on cleaning and sanitizing activities, and really better understanding some of the resources and tools that are out there that can help uh, the food industry mitigate these risks from the environmental pathogens. Um, we also provide a lot of technical assistance and work one-on-one -on -one with companies that may have questions related to listeria controls or troubleshooting, um, especially uh, different methods or contamination issues. And then through research uh, proposals and grants, um, we also investigate different research questions. And a lot of these uh, come directly from the food industry if they need uh, help validating uh, some method or um, they need help understanding contamination that's, uh, that's happening in different process or different uh, part of the environment. And then the other uh, part also kind of spans really from applied all the way from what we call the farm to to food chain or to fork and understanding the side of the microorganisms themselves. So what are some of the properties that make some microbes um, grow, better grow or survive in different environments or different foods um, and really utilizing the new technologies, the, the omics, the whole genome sequencing and what can we learn using the new technology? What can we learn about these microorganisms and then how do we translate that back to the industry and whatever um, will be the most useful for them to mitigate those risks? So that's sort of the research aspect. That's really interesting. So based on all of this research, you know, what do you think are some of the best intervention strategies that food processors can use to especially mitigate the risk of persistent listeria strains in processing environments? So that's a loaded question and I, one that we get a lot. And so there's a there's a lot of aspects that go into um, thinking about interventions and um, they will depend on, on the industry as well as uh, individual facilities, uh, processes, and as well as products. But with decades of really research uh, into Listeria and a lot of new knowledge, that we have acquired from the research and also what we've learned from contamination events and outbreaks, the efficient and robust cleaning and sanitizing uh, program still remains the priority in our battle with listeria. So especially for producers of ready to eat foods, 
And along those lines, um, hygienic design is really important. Um, often we see equipment that's very difficult to take apart and properly clean and sanitize. And if something's difficult to clean, the chances it won't be cleaned well. So this could then lead to buildup of a lot of organic matter and, and uh, microorganisms potentially leading to biofilms and prolonged and persistent contamination events in the environment or uh, food product, unfortunately. So cleaning and sanitizing programs um, still remain very effective interventions uh, when done appropriately. And so that can't be stressed enough that they really need to be done appropriately um, and tailored to each facility to be able to uh, efficiently apply these programs in controlling listeria. Um, understanding the persistence is a, a little bit uh, more complex um, and requires uh, a lot of eyes and a lot of thinking and root cause analyses to understand what's happening if there is a persistent contamination in, in the environment. But with some of the molecular tools that we now have, um, we have successfully used whole genome sequencing or multilocal sequence typing to give us an understanding of if the repeated positives that we see are potentially uh, living there for longer periods of time, um, or if they are what we call transients, if we have a constant influx or constant introduction of certain microorganisms. And depending on what uh, what we see, right, if they are constant transients coming in, then we can adjust our cleaning and sanitizing regimes to, to accommodate, uh, to fight those, right? But if there is a persistent um, potential contamination uh, niche or harborage site, then cleaning and sanitizing has to shift um, into um, more investigative, trying to understand the root cause uh, of why that is there, where exactly it is, and what's happening in the environment and how to get rid of that. So there's um, different, different interventions and different focus um, if we know what we're dealing with. But it's sometimes it is difficult to uh, understand when you're dealing with a persistent uh, issue versus a transient issue. And this is where environmental monitoring programs really come into play and really can um, help with those. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we know sanitation is the number one intervention, uh, you know, strategy for, um, for, for, for preventing pathogens, you know, in the environment and, Speaking of environmental monitoring programs, um, of which, you know, that's a part. So what are your recommendations for establishing a successful um, and strategic uh, environmental monitoring program for listeria in uh, something you mentioned before, ready to eat food operations? So I would say a company must have a very good and robust cleaning and sanitizing program before any environmental monitoring programs can be implemented. And um, one of the main or, or starting roles of uh, environmental monitoring programs is, is really verification of cleaning and sanitizing activities, and then hopefully giving a comprehensive picture of the status of the facility and processes that occur during production and after production. So at the FIC, we actually have an environmental monitoring workshop, and we spend two days getting into the weeds of how to uh, strategically develop an environmental program. But if I had to uh, say it in few in few sentences, um, I would uh, really say when starting, it's really important to define the goals of the environmental environmental monitoring program. 
whether it's part of the regulatory requirement, our buyer requirement, what happens during routine sampling versus investigative sampling um, when positive samples are encountered, and really having corrective actions considered before any sampling takes place, um, and hopefully having them written down, it's really important before, um, because you don't want to go into this blindly. And we know we never make good decisions when we're in the crisis mode. So um, thinking about this ahead of time uh, and ensuring that everybody um, everybody understands what happens when you have a positive, that ultimately you will have a positive. And everybody on the environmental monitoring program team should be uh, very clear how positives will be corrected and what follow-up actions need to happen uh, when this occurs. So there are a lot of details that have to be considered when establishing program, and these programs will look very different in each facility. So they need to be tailored to the facility products and processes that they take place in that facility. Mm -hmm. So you're saying um, when you're thinking about how to set up, uh, how to tailor an, an environmental monitoring program for for each different facility, and and you're thinking about. Um, you know, what's the sampling going to look like? Uh, you know, your recommendation is to um, think proactively about, you know, what do we do in the case of a positive? What would a correction act corrective action look like? And so thinking ahead to, um, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And then designing the program around, you know, what do we need to do to, you know, anticipate in anticipation of that? Is that basically what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly? Yes, absolutely, because there are different um, activities that will pl take place depending on if a positive is on a food contact surface mm -hmm. or if a positive is on a non-food contact surface. In the food industry, we sometimes talk about zones, mm -hmm. where zone one is a food contact surface. And then as you uh, step away from zone one, right, there's zone two, something that's close, uh, adjacent maybe to a food contact surface. And then we have zone three, like a drain, for example, um, so that is not a non-food contact surface. And um, sampling in each of these zones has its role. And it will provide different information about the facility. But when you find the positive, your actions and um, activities that will take place may look different um, and will look different if it is non-food contact surface versus food contact surface. In the U.S., we have zero tolerance uh, for Listeria monocytogenes in ready-to-eat foods. And so if a food contact surface is positive or if a product is positive, uh, that will uh, likely lead to recall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, with looking at different zones and sampling, of course, you know, the sampling is going to be different, um, you know, as far as frequency and, and thoroughness for, for each zone. And, you know, what you would find in one zone kind of informs what you might expect to find in the other. So that's, that's interesting um, point there. So, um, I want to shift now to um, another aspect of your work that focuses heavily on agricultural food safety strategies. Now, in the last two decades, we've been seeing issues with listeria outbreaks in fresh produce when, you know, historically the focus has been on listeria prevention in food categories like dairy or ready to eat foods um, or seafood. So why do you think that we're seeing this shift to um, listeria and produce and what what makes listeria prevention difficult for produce? Yeah, that's um, that's also an interesting 
a question and aspect that we've been talking a lot uh, in the last few years. And um, I don't think it's anything specific um, or, you know, particular that all of a sudden produce, uh, listeria is more problematic in produce. Um, as I said, listeria is really widespread and it can grow in many different commodities. So I like to joke and say that listeria doesn't discriminate. Uh, so it, it really can um, can become a problem in, in any industry uh, if given the opportunity. Um, but one important aspect that I think that we need to uh, talk about is that listeria live in the agricultural environments naturally. So their natural habitat is soil and decaying vegetation. So it's not surprising to see them in the agricultural environment. And in fact, it's unrealistic to not have listeria in these environments. So then the main focus becomes on controlling the environment so that the products, um, those products don't become contaminated. Or if products do come contaminated inadvertently, controlling the rest of the process so that the contamination is at a minimal level and so that listeria doesn't grow to high numbers in these products. And while processing industry usually has some sort of a kill step that would um, kill listeria in uh, raw ingredients or, you know, your starting food, fresh produce industry usually doesn't have this, so which makes it harder to, to control listeria and other microorganisms, not just listeria. So, one good thing that we do see with uh, fresh produce often is that there's a lot of natural microflora present as well. And listeria doesn't compete too well with a lot of these microbes. So the survival on the intact produce is typically very low. But when we start cutting and slicing and then packaging produce um, and extending the shelf life, we now introduce most handling, more handling steps and more opportunities for listeria to get inside um, where there are more nutrients and they better survive and then um, they can also grow. And even when we refrigerate the foods, uh, since listeria can grow at refrigeration temperature, they actually get the competitive competitive advantage because they can still grow at refrigeration at refrigeration temperatures while other microbes can't. And so we now as consumers, and especially with trends um, that we've seen for uh, convenient uh, packaging, you know, packaged salads and things that like that, we've now created a um, new type of product with extra handling that maybe we haven't seen listed yet before, but now these types of products um, have extended shelf life, more handling steps, no kill step. And so there's more opportunity for contamination during the handling and processing, and then for a survival and potential growth if those products are in our fridges for a long time. So there's definitely been um, a lot of different different activities from the consumer side that have driven um, some of the trends that we see. And I think also our awareness, uh, we do a lot of more surveillance, we do a lot more testing, we have a better detection method, so we are able to pick up um, these uh, these occurrences more often as well. Yeah, definitely. Another one of your research interests is uh, sanitizer tolerance of listeria and other foodborne pathogens. So what general trends have you observed in your research for sanitizer tolerance of listeria and other pathogens and, you know, for, for biofilms of these pathogens as well? So one good thing is that um, in all the research that we've done, when we use commercial sanitizers and 
we follow um, the recommendations or exact steps on how to uh, use these sanitizers, the manufacturer recommendations. Um, these steps typically include cleaning prior to sanitizing and whether we are looking at um, cultures with planktonic cells or whether it is uh, attached cells, biofilm cells, if there is, um, especially for when we study biofilms, if there is cleaning uh, prior to sanitizing, the sanitizers are effective at um, what they are intended to do. Right, so we we don't see resistance to sanitizers when sanitizers are used appropriately, and I think this is very important to um, to tell because um, there's been a lot of research, and I think as researchers sometimes we are guilty of saying resistance, right? Um, antimicrobial resistance, and this stems from our research on antibiotics, right? Antibiotic resistance or AMR, and then that can sometimes translate to sanitizer resistance, but mm -hmm. really um, I've been very careful in propagating that we do not use the word resistance for sanitizers, that we talk more of tolerance because that's exactly what we've been seeing. We do see differences in how bacteria react to uh, different sanitizers and some are more tolerant than others depending on um, some of the conditions that are tested or genetic uh, elements that some of the microorganisms have. And so there's definitely difference in microorganisms and conditions that lead to tolerance. Um, but whether this is full-blown resistance, uh, it's not something that at least I have not seen in, in my research. So I think it's really important to, to clarify that. The common issue that we do see and then we talk about is potential exposure to sublethal concentrations of sanitizers. And um, this kind of ties back to that cleaning and sanitizing regimes and properly cleaning and sanitizing. And for some of the equipment that we can't um, clean as well, right, then maybe there is um, a layer of organic uh, materials that are left on the surfaces, or maybe the surfaces have certain crevices or, or um, defects and bacteria can then hide and grow and survive there. Um, those are the instances where potentially sanitizers don't really penetrate and don't reach all the uh, microorganisms. And this is when um, people talk of the resistance or tolerance or issues with sanitation. And so in those instances, what we can, um, what we sometimes see is that bacteria that have those um, increased tolerance or these mechanisms for increased tolerance, they're better able to survive. And they're the ones that can survive for a very long time in the facility if they're not um, uh, cleaned and sanitized properly. And so this is where we see with uh, sanitizer. Um, one thing that we've been um, interested in, we don't really understand a lot of the mechanisms uh, when it comes to uh, co-selection or what we call cro cross resistance between sanitizers and uh, antibiotics. We've definitely seen studies that show um, increased tolerance to uh, quaternary compounds uh, quaternary ammonium compounds or quats that are components of sanitizers in the industry of some sanitizers in the industry or very common sanitizers in the industry. Uh, we see that they can trigger increased uh, resistance to certain antibiotics. And uh, sometimes this is through um, mechanisms that we call efflux pumps where the substrate is um, effectively pumped out of the cell. And sometimes there are 
uh, certain mutations and uh, certain uh, genetic um, components that happen and and then they lead to increased level either um, medium or high resistance to antibiotics but sometimes those mechanisms are not necessarily related so there's a lot that happens on the uh, phenotypic um, side or genomic and phenotypic level that is still not very understood one of our um, recent uh, papers, one of the research that one of my students, um, Rebecca Bland, did, showed that if you increase the minimum inhibitory concentration of listeria, some listeria monocytogenase strains, even by one part per million. So um, in the industry, let's say when we use uh, quads, um, they can be used at 200 parts per million for good contact surfaces, or they can be used for 800 or over 1,000 parts per million for drains and non-food contact surfaces. So these are very high concentrations. When we test our microorganisms um, against these uh, commercially available sanitizers, our minimum inhibitory concentrations are very low. They can be uh, one part per million or, or up to five parts per million, but never um, higher than that. But uh, for those that start at low, uh, let's say at one or two parts per million, and when we try to adapt them sequentially in the lab to increase it to at least one part per million more, so let's say they jump from two to three or from three to four, and then we test them against antibiotics, we see for some antibiotics, um, these isolates that have maybe been sensitive to them now have jumped to a class, either intermediate susceptibility or resistance to certain antibiotics. Um, and we don't know why we're seeing some of this. We've done whole genome sequencing then to look at what are some of the genomic changes that have happened. And we do see a number of mutations. So there is a possibility that um, the exposure the to sanitizers, specifically in this case, it was quads. So low, very low concentrations and resulting in a very minor change in the MIC, but there is also something that happens down the line and exposure to potentially antibiotics that might be impacted. But we don't know if these adaptations are long-term. So um, we do, we see certain immediate changes, but we don't, um, we don't know whether this actually has an implication down the line if a person was to um, acquire listeriosis with this type of microorganism, whether they would then have trouble uh, with treatment if they needed antibiotic treatment. So there's a lot of questions still in this in this area. I think understanding uh, sanitizers and how we use the sanitizers, and then whether there is any implication down the line for antibiotics usage and antibiotic resistance. Uh, but I think the good thing is what we see um, we don't see these impacts or changes in antibiotics that are first line of treatment for listeriosis. So we're good there. It's just that we do see some uh, some interesting trends with other types of uh, antibiotics. That's really interesting stuff. And, you know, very interesting that you and your team have identified a potential link between the use of that particular class of sanitizers and, you know, AMR of listeria, um, which is something that I know uh, antimicrobial resistance, resistance of listeria and other pathogenic bacteria is something that you're studying in your lab. Um, 
now you you kind of talked a little bit about um, some of the changes that you're seeing with the AMR of um, listeria. You know, what other types of things are you studying with AMR for listeria and other pathogens? And you know, what what challenges do you see this causing for the future of public health? So when it comes to antibiotic resistance, I think um, we're lucky that listeria still remains fairly susceptible to most antibiotics and to all of the antibiotics that we use for uh, listeria treatment. Um, there might be, you know, um, individual cases, right, like that we see with with all the microbes, but in general, listeria monocytogenes over the last few decades that we've studied has not acquired um, resistance to antibiotics that are important in listeriosis treatment. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that is really um, important to to know, then this is good. Um, but we have seen certain trends in different populations, depending on where where we look and where, where they're studied, uh, where we find um, listeria monocytogenes or other listeria species with antibiotic uh, resistance to certain antibiotics that we haven't seen prior or that we don't see in all the regions. So there's definitely influence, I think, on the practices um, that we see in different globally, in different uh, geographical regions that may uh, drive some of these uh, some of these changes. But again, uh, going back to, I think, the understanding the resistance when it comes to um, these other antibiotics, it's not um, as well studied in Listeria. So there's a lot of mechanisms that we still uh, still don't understand, or st- still don't know. Um, and um, then there are the ones that, that we do. Um, and I think the good thing is that, again, Listeria doesn't seem to be um, as as impacted by a lot of the changes. So um, I'm not sure what that means in the future. Um, and if Listeria could become more resistant, uh, probably, but I think um, with the awareness that we're trying to put out there about antibiotic resistance and a lot of changes in the practices in the agricultural settings, um, I think we are making great strides in uh, improving our aspect of antimicrobial resistance and, and our approach to battling antimicrobial resistance. Okay, really, really interesting stuff. Thanks for elaborating on that. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet is um, your work with the Re- Western Regional Center to Enhance Food Safety. And you're the director of that center, and it's one of four regional centers created to coordinate food safety training programs resulting from FISMA. So, I'm curious, how does the Western Regional Center help develop and support trainers for FISMA-related workshops? And, you know, who is this training designed for? So a little bit of background about the center. Um, When FISMA was passed, um, the U.S. food safety system was really forced to shift from reacting to foodborne outbreaks to helping us prevent them. And really to do this effectively, it was recognize that the existing and future food industry workforce at the local, state, regional, national, and international levels really need to be educated in food safety and these preventive control strategies. So with in U.S. with over 100,000 registered domestic food facilities that are subject to some of the rules, specifically preventive controls for human food rule um, of FISMA, and over 40,000 produce farm subject to the produce safety rule. It was really an immediate and and urgent need for extension and outreach. 
Um, and in September 2015, um, OSU, Oregon State University, was awarded a three-year um, USDA competitive um, grant to lead FSMA training efforts for the Western uh, 13 Western states and also two territories, American Samoa and Guam. And um, when I joined OSU, I became the project coordinator and later on and co-principal investigator and later on the director of the center um, with the goal of uh, coordinating the development of the cadre of the food safety professionals that would then be able to go in and train the food industry on these preventive controls and these uh, specific rules. And so since then, we worked with um, hundreds of trainers in each of the states to prepare them for providing support to food industry, focus specifically on preventive controls and produce safety rule. Um, in the beginning, we focused on training the trainers on uh, two main curricula developed by Produce Safety Alliance, which was focused on produce safety rule and uh, Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance, which was focused on preventive controls for human food. And then since then, uh, we have worked with the alliances and worked with um, a lot of um, non-governmental organizations um, and other groups in understanding what are those regional um, needs that maybe, you know, it's different from what we see in California and how we um, how we grow produce in California versus how we do in Florida. And so what are those regional um, nuances and how can we help tailor some of the trainings, um, developing what we call add-on materials. So adding on to the uh, standardized trainings that would help uh, within each uh, region and within each state have uh, focused on different foods and different commodities and what food safety looks like in those. And so the center has been really instrumental in bringing this network together and then um, trying to learn from each other and then trying to collaborate on different aspects of food safety uh, projects. Some of the projects um, are more uh, global and general, and then some of them are very spe specialized. Um, and so now into you know, six years into the center, we have been evolving in terms of what the training needs are. Um, just yesterday, the traceability rule was uh, released. The final traceability rule was released. We are still waiting for the ag agricultural water component and what that will look like. And the trainers that are part of these uh, regional centers are really instrumental in um, taking the information and uh, communicating that to the industry and helping industry understand these, uh, frankly, complex uh, topics and uh, complex expectations right, that they've been placed on the industry. So trying to work with the industry to help them uh, get into compliance and help them uh, mitigate some of these some of these issues. I I really wanted to to thank uh, everybody on the in the Western uh, region for doing this work and um, and I guess brag a little bit that uh, in 2021 we did uh, receive uh, USDA NIFA uh, partnership award for this work and um, this. There's not a whole lot of incentives to do this work. So people that are part of this network are really people that care about food safety and uh, taking this information to the food industry. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. And um, sounds like you guys are doing a lot of great uh, work and, and outreach and, and training there. So um, thanks for 
Thanks for talking about that for our listeners and explaining more about what you do at the Western Regional Center. So um, for my closing question for you today, I want to ask you kind of a broad, broad question and get your thoughts on what changes would you like to see happen in food safety over the next decade? And, you know, how do you hope that your work will contribute to those changes? So what I would really like to see is that um, finding a way that we can incorporate the new technologies and new tools and resources that we have into um, helping the industry mitigate risks. I think there's been a lot done on that side and we've shown the use of those technologies such as whole genome sequencing and outbreak um, tracing and, and uh, contamination tracing as well. And then we've used it in a lot of research, but um, we haven't really quite figured out a way to um, bring this technology and make it usable for the industry and especially uh, smaller and medium-sized uh, facilities and uh, and farms as well. So my goal is to to take all this that we have and learn and and translate it into usable tools um, and equip the industry with those tools so they can better understand the con contaminants and and what happens in their environments and then um, best ways to mitigate those risks. I still think um, there's a lot of room. Um, in that um, area to, to grow. Um, we know that there are differences on strain level, um, microbial, um, uh, different microbial pathogens and strains within uh, those that we uh, recover when it comes to their ability to cause illness in different populations. We know that there are differences in strains, fitness or survival in different environments. Uh, but our data are often um, too narrow geographically or obtained differently in different countries and regions. So we cannot always have consensus on what those key properties are. So I think we have a long way to go in understanding uh, some of those components, um, which will require more surveillance and more data in different parts um, globally, I think. Um, and the goal, however, is that as we improve surveillance and gather more uniform data, that these properties will be incorporated in risk assessments and mitigation strategies. So I think this will have really an important implication for food industry in terms of um, economy, especially for what we see with all the recalls and for food waste and for their uh, sustainability. Fantastic. Well, that's definitely, those are definitely some uh, things to look forward to and to uh, target. So uh, thank you so much, Giovanna, for uh, the talk today and for sharing uh, all this insightful um, information with our audience. We've really enjoyed having you as a guest on the podcast today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, to talk to your listeners and to share some of our work. Thanks again to Dr. Giovanna Kovacevic for joining us on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. A very special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Michigan State University. Please visit foodsafety.msu.edu and then click on the Master's Program link to learn more about their Master of Science in Food Safety. And please, don't hesitate. Send us questions or suggestions to podcast at food-safety.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We're always happy to get your feedback. To make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your podcast player, all you have to do is click that follow or subscribe button in the player of your choice and presto, that's it. 
just one click. And while you're there, please throw some stars our way by rating the podcast, especially if you enjoyed it. It only takes a moment, and it's good for everyone. And that's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on January 24th. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you, and we'll talk to you then.